November 26th. We're in Studio 2 here at Sunset Sound Recorders with, with my buddy Glenn Sobel, who is such an amazing drummer. How are you, bud? I'm good. Excellent. How are you, buddy? I'm good, man. We were just hanging out with Kenny Aronoff, who was uh, telling us some stories, talking our ears off. That guy's played on a few records. <laughs> just a few. To say, to say the least. <laughs> Now, you're a drummer who did some of the coolest gigs around. Obviously, Alice Cooper, you've been with now 11 years. Almost 11 years. It flies by. Everybody says that. It's true. flies by. That's a great gig. I mean, that's the, the, the gig that drummers dream about. It's having. one of the best gigs in rock and roll. Absolutely. Best boss. We met uh, just three months ago now because I executive produced Orianthi's latest record, and uh, we tracked the whole thing live in this room. Who does that anymore? It's coming back, actually. Yeah. Like musicians together in a room recording, the way everybody pictures it in their head. Usually it's not the case, but it's coming back. Well, you got to be good enough to do it, yeah. first off. But, uh, yeah, we had such a fun time. We had uh, Gary Clark Jr. producer, Jacob Skiba, who I brought in, and then we had this assortment of people that really didn't know each other. We had Justin Andres, who was uh, is the musical director for Eric Burden, and he's done a cool bunch of great session work, but we just blended it did, uh, yeah. Somehow the right people were called all across the board on this, yeah. and it's been working. I really called well. you at midnight after day one <laughs> because we, well, we had to get rid of the first band that was in here that wasn't vibing with us. So it does happen sometimes. Orianthi people, said, can, I need Glenn Zobel. <laughs> people can be great, but they might not be the right people, person, whatever for a project. It's not that uncommon. Yes. I, you know, I love talking to uh, people like you and especially musicians because you're from L.A. And the nostalgia and the history of L.A. and those golden years back then, uh, you know, even in the 90s, it was just the cool fucking place to be. And when I'm from Chicago, yeah. Indiana, where I was just talking to Kenny about that, you know, what you did back then, you didn't know how to get in the music industry. You just came to L.A. Blindly. And, yes, people just coming exactly. here without a guidebook and nobody's going to help you unless you got a relative in the business. Yeah. Crazy enough being here, but to move here from somewhere else or from out of the country and come here not knowing what's up, I mean, yeah, yeah. that's pretty daunting. You started um, at El Camino High School. You were in jazz band. You were in marching band. You were in all the bands, the music the programs at El Camino High. Yeah, I, I actually, before that, started in middle school with beginner band. And it, it's just a crazy quick little story in that every kid every guy that got into beginning band class in seventh grade all wanted to play drums they didn't want to play trumpet or trombone or whatever that's lame we figured so they couldn't have every guy on drums so we all had to pick numbers out of a hat to see who gets drums <laughs> and there were two numbers left and two guys left one of them was me i picked the right number this major life crossroads moment and i didn't even realize it wow. at the time but that's really what started it that's incredible yeah. those little life decisions and that first that teacher mr tremonti he was cool and very encouraging. Can you imagine if you picked number seven and you may be working at Staples right now or be a rocket scientist? Or yeah, anything? you just, I, I don't even want to think about if I picked the wrong number. How <laughs> fun was it to be growing up in Los Angeles then? I mean, because you're so exposed to the entertainment industry, the music industry, the great weather, cool things. I mean, people dream of L.A., the song California Dreaming, I mean, that's just really a real thing. Well, when you're a kid, you take it all for granted. Now, looking back, it's like, oh, my God, how lucky were we to be in and around all this, becoming of age to go to clubs, the all-ages clubs. You just don't realize how, how great it is to be 
from here and go to a place like the Baked Potato, which is this famous hole-in-the-wall jazz club in Studio City. It's known all over the world, but people come from Europe or Asia and they go, wow, this is it? This is like a closet. But <laughs> I was there watching like Vinnie Coliuta from 10 feet away play. I mean, those were lessons. That was school. Yeah. And again, just took that for granted. Los Angeles. Yeah, you go to these random little places and you see the world's best performing on a tuesday night yeah exactly first time i went there i had moved from uh the midwest and it was danny carey with volto uh i subbed for danny and volto oh have you yeah at the potato last minute thing you know because he got the flu Uh, john ziggler too what an amazing they're uh, amazing players yeah that whole the whole scene down there and also a fun fact it's owned by uh well justin randy but don randy who started it the wrecking crew he was the piano player and he played on over 10,000 albums. He played on Pet Sounds, Beach Boys. He bought all the Steinways in this studio. Uh, that's a 1907 Steinway. I mean, the one in uh, Studio 3, obviously, Prince did Purple Rain on. Uh, Unchained, Van Halen was worked on on that piano, which a lot of people don't know. Unchained was written on piano. Everything ties back to Sunset Sound. Yes. What is it with this place? It's untouched. It's a mom <laughs> and pop shop, and it's just the place you go to make great music. Now, there's a really cool thing that happened to you early on, and that's getting paired up uh, and having a mentor in Greg Bissonette. Yeah. Again, just being in L.A., born and raised, I'm like 18 years old, and I run into Greg. I recognize him at this one chicken store I like eating at forever. (laughs) Yeah, El Pollo Amigo. Not El Pollo Loco, but El Pollo Amigo, the chicken friend. They make great stuff, great chicken. But I just recognize him. We started talking, and... I had heard, I think, that he gave lessons, and sure enough, he did when he was in town and off the road. And so me and one of my best friends, we were both drummers. We both started these group lessons with him. It was like two to four guys an hour. And we happened to go to Cal State Northridge, and Greg was giving lessons right by Cal State Northridge. So me and my buddy would wake up kind of hungover on a Saturday morning, drive across the street to where Greg was teaching and do a lesson. And that was just some of the most invaluable instruction that I had, not just about here's how to play this or that, but the business and what happens on sessions, you know, whether it's a commercial jingle or a, a record for an artist. So yeah, that was, that was great. And, and he's, that's so, he's so recommended huge. me on a lot of things since. And that happens all the time. We mentioned that yesterday when we were talking about uh, how teachers recommend their students all over because they're so well respected, but that's, you know, Kenny got fired two weeks in on John Mellencamp because he didn't know the business. He didn't have mm-hmm. studio etiquette. He didn't know how a, a drummer was supposed to play in the studio. And, you know, having a teacher like him. I think he tells that story in Hired Gun a bit, the movie that oh, we're really? all in. Yeah. Okay. But he stuck around and yeah, yeah. learned and the rest is history. Well, I just said to him also, like, about your, uh, you know, number and a hat story, what if you hadn't left that day when John fired you? What, where would you be? Yeah. Now, for those, you know, there's a lot of younger people, but explain kind of who Greg Bissonette was or is. Right. Well, people, especially back then, people would most know him for being the drummer in the original David Lee Roth solo band that started in the mid-'80s when Dave went solo from Van Halen. And he wanted to pick this just stellar, top-notch, badass group of musicians. So you had Greg on drums, Steve I on guitar, Billy Sheehan on bass. <laughs> And Eat Him and Smile is this benchmark in the rock music community of what serious musicianship mixed with great songwriting sounds like. So Greg was a part of that, but he has a history before that. He was doing sessions. He was in the Maynard Ferguson big band, 
which Dave really liked because Dave had that little bit of big band vibe going on. He did just a gigolo and yeah, uh, wow. that's life. So that was a plus. And after Dave, Greg was playing with Joe Satriani and he did that Pat Boone big band <laughs> record called No More Mr. Nice Guy where Pat Boone did big band versions of metal songs. Greg was perfect for that. But I mean, you know, this scratches the surface of what he's done. But yeah. I, I wanted to emulate his career because he was so versatile and playing with a lot of people reading music which i did thanks to my junior high and high school education and you still know how to read music oh it's been everything yeah. yeah and i saw him do that how he makes charts or cheat sheets as they're called i said that's i want to do that wow wow yeah i mean th thank you for explaining that uh you know dave david lee roth he knew a lot about music even before van halen like he really studied music he knew all the motown he knew the big band stuff a lot of cool standards him and ted templeman had a great bond over music it's it's impressive great you know? musician mixed with the right idea of showmanship yes to bring that band to where it is i think he's the guy that suggested it we got to get these girls dancing you know you guys are playing cream white room and all that's cool but why don't we try dancing in the streets yeah and they did it on diver down recorded here 100 percent, crazy you know but that that sound and what eddie did on that track is another innovative guitar technique out of many doesn't even sound like guitar now you're growing up with jazz influences uh like billy cobham and vinnie caliuta how did you get into rock and roll? Were you listening to that inside, uh, in the side? It was of... actually rock first. Oh, really? The jazz came later. I, I think the jazz is an entry point into music and learning drums. Yeah, I think. Well, there was, there was like all these levels. I guess everyone's got a similar story or arc of how they discovered different things. I became interested in drums simply by hearing Rush exit stage left played by my friend's older brother across the street. It's so typical for so many drummers <laughs> to say that, but you know what, so what? It, it's how it went down. And so I heard the drum solo, you know, my friend's older, older brother said, check it out, man, the guy does a drum solo, it's, it's awesome. And I remember thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard, maybe I wanna play drums. And then of course Zeppelin came after that. And again, it was a live record that turned me on. The live records always had drum solos. So that was just something I was drawn to. So song remains the same, the soundtrack to the movie. Moby Dick. Yeah, exactly. The Moby Dick drum solo. And I just thought, okay, I, I got to see if I can play drums. And somehow I got put in that beginning band class in, in middle school. That's what started. And then Van Halen came, rock radio, but then progressive, Genesis, King Crimson, UK with uh, Terry Bozio and John Wetton. And then the jazz fusion, Billy Cobham, Ma Vishnu Orchestra, like Birds of Fire. I got that in high school. That was a game changer. Or Return to Forever. That was Chick Corea, Al Miola, Lenny White on drums, Stanley Clark on bass. That was a mix of heavy rock and even a little metal, but with jazz and classical. Total game changer. Yeah. Right? So it was always these, these records that I would get that would take me to that next level of, of getting into jazz. Do you th I think that's a common thread. I play guitar, and you know, I started venturing off into like jam band stuff and Trey Anastasio when I had mastered kind of the three chord arts. Let's try. It. Do you think that's the same for you know drummers? Obviously, it's like you got the rock thing down, but let's 
this shit's crazy. This timing, these 716 beats. This, exactly. You want to hear something even more impressive. We're yeah. always growing. I'm so glad that I discovered all that and had people turn me on to that stuff when I was in high school. Because what you listen to when you're in your teenage years, I, I'm a firm believer that that creates your musical DNA that stays with you the rest of your life. That's going to determine what you sound like on your instrument yeah. forever. And you're able to change that DNA here and there, but your formative years, what you listen to and take in, you're a sponge more than you know it. So when I've had students, kids, I'm always thinking, okay, now it's my job to turn them on to stuff I think might change their game up a little bit. You need those those moments and those records. Now you got to go by track because on one of these, you've got the history of recorded music at your fingertips. So there's like too much yeah. to soak up. Tony McAlpine, um, Edge of Insanity, you've told me numerous times, is such a big influential record with you, which again has Billy Sheehan on bass, yeah. Steve Smith on drums. Why does that record have such a connection with you? Well, first, because it bridges a gap in a way. It's considered like a metal fusion record. And at the time, there was no one better than Steve Smith on drums. Most people know him from Journey, but he had played with Jean-Luc Ponty, the, the fusion violin player. He had his own group, Vital Information. And, of course, Billy Sheehan can play anything on the bass. That was a trio record. Came out about 85. It was somewhat of a game changer. And I was lucky enough that at one point in 1992, Greg Bissonette calls me one day and says, hey, man, have you ever heard of Tony McAlpine? I said, oh, man, totally. I've got Edge of Insanity and Maximum Security. He said, well, start learning the tunes. I just gave you a number to his manager, and, and I got the gig. Wow. So. Uh, Tony had some serious players with him. I thought, oh my God, what did I get myself into? But that's where you either fold or you step up. Uh, Tony had Dean Castronova in his band, who's also a very big influence, went on to play in Journey as well as so many other gigs. And that was a great experience. That was my first record uh, I did with Tony called Madness, came out in 93. How many records has he done? Not that many. I think he's done more than some people might imagine. Okay. When he was a part of the Shrapnel Records label, there was quite a few, including the one I did. And he's gone even more fusion and progressive over the last 20 years from what I've heard. Then he was playing in Steve Vai's band. And he's a classically trained piano player. I don't know what he's better at, guitar or piano. Jesus. Yeah, gifted. So those golden years of music, you know, I mean, it's just, it's the thing that movies are made of, books are written of, Rolling Stone's done thousands of articles on. What was the vibe in the streets kind of in, you know, the early 90s <laughs> around L.A.? And what were you, was it just cool? You was say L.A. early 90s? Well, what are we talking, 1990? Because it was just like busy, man. I mean, the hair metal thing, that Sunset Strip, that was just like, Tons of people walking up and down the street, bands handing out flyers, you know, before there was the internet. People think that grunge had taken over by then. No, 1990, not, not really, not at all, actually. I saw Alice in Chains open for the band Extreme at, <laughs> at Avalon here. It used to be called The Palace. What? And, and everybody booed Alice in Chains. Like, we didn't get it. Like, imagine. we didn't want to get it. We didn't want what they were selling. But then, you know, a couple years later, they're the biggest thing going. I love them now. It's just, it was a shock to the system. Because by 92 and definitely 93, the scene that you're asking me about, the page just had turned quickly. And grunge truly killed hair metal. It killed shred guitar for a good while, too. So right when I got the gig playing with Tony McAlpine, I was like, all right, you got the gig. Shred's done. 
<laughs> you know, good timing, perfect. But, but yeah, it, it was a strange time, the early '90s, because a lot of bands they literally were saying, "Well, now what do we do? What is all this shit? This flannels and goatees? It was just this sudden change in everything." And MTV was saying, "No, Soundgarden is it now." And Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam. I mean, me and my friends, we almost got into fights with people. That said, like, hey man, did you hear that Soundgarden record? That's badass. And we'd say, no, come on, what are you talking about? It was just, it was a threat to our way of life. I, I love these bands now. I think Chris Cornell was a serious game changer for the way people approach rock vocals. But back then, we're like, oh man, what's happening? I mean, well, even on the first, you know, when the gun started off, Axel had the the hairsprayed poof yeah. going on. And, yeah, I welcome mean, to the jungle. Yeah, yeah, but they became more just the street jeans and jean jacket you know they survived that grunge wave so to speak i mean obviously the member changes and eventually the group kind of ended for a while but most other bands the white snakes and the van halen's van halen survived it they put out some great records with yeah. sammy balance and everything but yeah it was a sea change and it was hard to deal with for a lot of a lot of people that were in big bands that thought it would last forever they they Jesus. got very depressed insane yeah what was um the kind of the club that you was the whiskey really it for you then what else was going on yeah the viper room obviously had yeah before Rainbow. it was the viper room it was the central and might have been a couple other names but that was filthy mcnasty's in the 60s as far yeah. as I know. alice cooper is the guy that could tell you about that because the original alice cooper group was playing the whiskey in like 1969 opening for the doors zeppelin pink floyd at the whiskey wow yeah <laughs> mind blown right and, well, Mickey Cohen, the famous L.A. gangster, he owned uh, Cyro's, I believe, and then he also owned the Viper Room, which was like a kind of a speakeasy back then. Oh, I wouldn't doubt and it. And that building has so much history in it, and now they're talking about knocking it down and put a hotel up. Yeah, they've been saying that for years. Let's see if it happens. That's Hopefully such not. bullshit. And that's what I love about Sunset Sound is the nostalgia in here because nothing's changed. And, you know, when you go down to Austin, Texas or New Orleans, I want to feel like I'm there. And also when you come to the Sunset Strip, you know, it's obviously not the same, but you can imagine. And when Tower Records is gone and when the Viper Room's gone and, you know, thank God for the, what's the family that owns Viper or uh, Rainbow and Yeah, Whiskey. Magliari. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I and mean, that family's an institution. There's a documentary on the Rainbow on uh, Amazon. Yeah, and if you step into the Rainbow, it looks more or less the same as it has for such a long time. You get a bit of a time capsule feel from yeah. it. Yeah. The photos on the walls and everything. Support those places. I mean, Sunset, the whiskey, that's what makes this city great. That's what makes Hollywood very cool and historic. If it goes, you know, sideways and everything's looking like Starbucks and John Rodriguez and There's gonna be no reason to want to come here. To yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean it's it's just it's absurd. Even from ten years ago to now, Hollywood's completely different. Very much. Yeah. So um exciting stuff. Did you um kind of grew up then in the baked potato just listening and observing and that was the place yeah. that had the jazz fusion i started going there when i was 16 because it was all ages and it used to be all ages it, it is all ages i don't Still? think it ever was 21 up it's a restaurant they serve baked potatoes there oh, yeah that's only every only variety of baked potato you could think of they got it so yeah. yeah and i just i guess there was a part of me that thought wow actually this is pretty cool how you could just go in and watch 
from up close. And I, I didn't just watch the drummers. I was watching the bands and how they interact and cue each other. That was an education that I didn't even know I was getting. Yeah. And you feel like you're in your grandma's basement because it's yeah. literally, you know. Yeah. And I'm fortunate enough to, to play there sometimes. And and it, it looks the same as it did from way back. And it's got that history. We were in here hanging out the other night, uh, listening to Orianthi's record. An artist, Jacob Bunton, had brought up the fact that you were in the band Beautiful Creatures, which he loved going to see at the Whiskey. Actually, he saw it back in his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, okay. Yeah. But then he had saw a show out here as well, right? Oh, I'm sure he did, but the first time was 20 years ago, back in the day, when we played Five Points Music Hall in Birmingham. Great club venue. So you guys were nationally touring. You were on Warner Brothers. We were. So you start this group called Beautiful Creatures, and then do we recorded here at Sunset. That record, yeah, was? we did some demo stuff here. Okay. We didn't do the full on record. Yeah, you had told me that, but we were it was a demo. But actually, one of those songs did get on a movie soundtrack, so it was more than a demo. What movie? Movie called Valentine, like a slasher movie with Denise Richards, and Ooh, nice. uh, we did the whole Man Chinese Theater red carpet premiere. Everyone didn't know who we were because our record wasn't out yet. But Warner Brothers movie, Warner Brothers Records. You could figure out the politics on that. So when we were in here tracking Orianthi's album, obviously, you know, we're both Van Halen nuts. When did Van Halen kind of come on your radar? Obviously, you know, he's such a big L.A. band. They weren't, you know, this world explosion or even kind of an American explosion on the first couple records. It was a, an incline. It was a slow climb, yeah. You know, you asked when they came into the picture. I don't know. It's like, it's like they were always just there. <laughs> Like being a kid, just growing up listening to KLOS, that's the classic rock station, and there was KMET back in the day, basically the same thing. They were just playing You Really Got Me and songs like that all the time that became the soundtrack to our youth. It just was there, and it sinks in by osmosis. But then at a certain point in high school, it's like, no, 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 I got to get beyond just the radio hits. I got to, exactly. it's up to me. It's my job to get every record. And you had to save up for records back then, but it's like, okay, I gotta get women, children, women and Children first, Fair Warning, Van Halen 1 and 2, Diver Down, and I'm so glad I did. It's like I forced myself to buy all those because to me, the album tracks, they're so much more favorited than the singles because you get sick of the singles. Everybody knows those, but there's just every song is a winner and... Eddie, Alex, they're doing things that were so innovative. Yeah, they're the four-headed monster. And so, yeah. I mean, they didn't just have a big effect on you. It was a monster effect. Totally. I mean, yeah. I mean, especially growing up in L.A., I think it was even more so for people. Definitely an L.A. thing. Because they're so, you know, they're from Amsterdam, the two brothers. Uh, what's his? Dave's from uh, Indiana. Michael's from Chicago. They just met here. And California. they did backyard parties, yeah. <laughs> just like my band in high school did. We were trying to follow in their footsteps. And Alex needs to be talked about more and more because, I mean, I was talking to uh, Kenny and you earlier about how his, his drum sounds are so identifiable. And I'll, you know, obviously a lot of that was Don Landy, how we were hearing these records, but it's just, he, he was a great drummer. And that, you know, Van Halen wasn't just a guitar world. It was, you know, it's, you had the greatest guitarist ever true. in there, but it was so much more than that. It's back to what I just said, the four-headed monster. Alex was... Yeah, I, I think that at the same time, he is very revered by drummers as one of the yeah. guys. But at the same time, he could also be underrated maybe because he was in that band with his brother. But when I'm talking innovation, I mean like he was the first to do certain things or one of the first. 
you look at a song like I'm the One from the first record. Now, this came yeah. out in 78. Am I right about that? Probably recorded here in about 77. Yes. So to do what's called the double bass shuffle, it's a heavy, you know, like a duke 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 but with the... This was before he did that on later records, like on Diver Down, there's the full bug, and then he did Hot for Teacher. But he did that on the first record. And now that was a thing that Billy Cobham did on the first Billy Cobham solo record. I'm a total geek about this stuff. So this was Billy Cobham's first solo record from 73 called Spectrum. And there's a song on there called Quadrant, Quadrant 4, I think it's called. I've played this song at the Baked Potato to kind of bring it full circle. <laughs> that is cool. But... This is the double bass shuffle, and just people's minds were blown. I, I like looking at things in the context, like, wow, this came out in 73? What were people thinking when they heard this? But then Alex did a version of this with Van Halen in 77, 78 for I'm the One. What did drummers say when they heard this? Yeah. I, I don't know. I want to, like, hear somebody's reaction, but this was innovative. Also, you know, I want to go back and listen to those Starwood tapes now because they were playing I'm the One way back. True. Then, you know? Yeah, so even before the record. I got to go back and listen to that. But, I mean, it's just, you know, also on those early records, just that fat, warm sound and, it, you know, attacking the snare more on later records. But what's your favorite Van Halen record? Man, that's like asking <laughs> mom who's her favorite child, what's right? your favorite kind of pizza? Yeah, I, there's so many. I, I, every record has its... its super high points i mean i love diver down i know it's got a lot of covers on it but uh man and then women and children first has uh it has loss of control on there right yeah yeah boy that's a barn burner and w what i love about these songs i mean we're talking about that and then there's the other more mellower songs where alex is not wailing on the drums he's he's a little more laid back and subdued People overlook that. I mean, big time. Why don't people, you know, I've asked this question a hundred times and nobody ever says Fair Warning. That's by far my favorite album. Fair Warning's great. I yeah. just, I, that's, I immediately go to that. And also, you know, he's got the Rosewood snare, the Ludwig drums. How did Alex's drums kind of advance, do you think, after Van Halen 1, 2, to Women and Children, to the track you were just talking about? Well, as far as mixes go, there was always further and more clarity from record to record, but that's just the evolution of recording techniques and mixing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he had that kind of honk sound on the snare sometimes, the Ludwig snare sound. You knew it was him when he would play it. Or like just tracks like Dirty Movies. Uh, mm -hmm. You feel like you're in the room, you know? Which, you know what? To me, that's the best way. Yeah. Make them feel like I love that. you're there. That's not records these days as much. It's very digital and cold and very clinical sounding. We're, we're having a, a giant engineer remix Orianthi's record for just that reason. We want it to sound fucked up. We want it to be aggressive. Yeah, gritty, not man. Kiss FM kind of pop rock. It, it's yeah. like I compare this all the time to like you know, HD TVs, they're making them better and better. They're getting too clear. Yes. The picture's too clear. You need some grain to make it look better. <laughs> Otherwise, it starts looking cheap and fake like you're on the set, right? The grain, it's like with two-inch tape back in the day. That's the hiss. The grain is the hiss. That's like the best way to describe why Pro Tools and all the digital way of recording is not always this amazing thing to have. Big time. All right, let's try something here. Finish my sentence. I'm the one is such an important drum song because... It swings. <laughs> I love that. The whole group swings. That's another thing that they brought as a band to rock and roll 
was, hey, this is going to swing, and whether you know it or not, you're going to swing while, while listening to it. Big time. Yeah. Loss of Control is such an important drum song because... Because it's got some insane stamina and coordination you need stamina. to keep it up. Love that. Out of Love Again is such an important drum song because... It's straight up funky. It's yeah. dirty and funky. Yeah, Out of Love Again. It's almost like jazz. It's singing. It's, um, he's it is. on every part of the drum kit. He's And he's not wailing on this. That's another situation. People think Alex Van Halen. They think John Bonham. They think it's all just they're killing the drums. And no, that's not what it is in the studio so often. You know, you need to back off to get more out of the drum. Alex is great at that. Yeah. And that drum track is just, yeah, it's jazzy, like you said. It's busy, but it's... It makes sense. It's not random busyness for the sake of it. Like, there's this one piece of phrasing in that song. I remember we were trying to play that song as kids, and we did, but looking back on the old VHS, it's like, oh, we were so wrong. <laughs> but still, we were trying, you know. You guys used to rec- oh, and, and, and just my first band, we played backyard parties, and we did whatever our version of Out of Love was. And uh, But now I know years later it's like oh they're doing a bar of three four there's some strange phrasing in there that only they could do you know um we kind of answered this one already push comes to shove is such an important alex drum track because it's got a serious cool r&b influence it's got that that hi-hat slightly with on beat four the floor tom those are the subtleties that make the track the groove on that that's just Alex is that good. So he's so incredible. Go check out, check out those tracks we mentioned, and uh, you won't be sorry. 11 years ago, you hook up with Alice Cooper, just an uh, iconic rock star that Coop. still goes out. And you just came off a tour for, what, 18 dates? No, we had 27 shows. Holy cow. Yeah, we did it. And it went really well. And we've got dates that are announced for next year. Some aren't announced yet. He just goes, man. He is a machine. He's got more energy than all of us. He golfs almost every day on tour. I don't know where he finds the energy. I need to sleep in on the bus. But you got the gig because a great producer, Tommy Hendrickson, who's in the Alice Cooper band, called you up because there was a vacancy and they had you come audition in Nashville? Well, you know what? There wasn't a formal audition. Nobody likes auditions when you're all just Uh, sitting out in a room and you're waiting to go in and play a couple songs that sucks everybody hates it for good reason right no what what i did was something that ended up serving as my audition without me knowing it really it was a recording session you mentioned tommy hendrickson i i go way back with him we've been in a couple of bands together but he also became a producer writer and he'd get me on sessions the producers are the ones that call people for sessions sure So he was living in Nashville in 2010, and he was working with Bob Ezrin, who produced Alice back in the day, Schools Out and Billion Dollar Babies, produced Kiss Destroyer and Pink Floyd The Wall and Peter Gabriel. He's done some of the most legendary recordings. And um, so Tommy was working with Bob Ezrin, and their next project was to do these Alice Cooper re-records, which a lot of artists do. And people ask, well, why would an artist re-record their own song? Well, there's reasons for this. If a movie or video game or TV show wants schools out or no more Mr. Nice Guy, there's this newly recorded master 
and it cuts out the old rights holders, the original label or whatever. It cuts them out of the deal. It's like a loophole in a way. And you're supposed to fool people into thinking they're hearing the original. So I had to transcribe every note that Neil Smith played on these original recordings and kind of do my best impression of him. And Bob Ezrin produced this session. He produced the songs back in the day, and here he was doing the re-records. Wow. And, uh, you know, Bob's a hard ass. You got to get it right. You get it quick or never, or you're out. <laughs> yeah, I had heard about that with him. So it's like, okay, I'm going to just show up overprepared like I do. And it went well enough to the point where they had asked Bob to produce the show the next year in 2011. And Bob said, okay, but you know what? We got to make some changes in this lineup. He wasn't feeling it, and he suggested me. He said, Tommy, what about your buddy Glenn that did the, the re-records? And, oh, wow, cool. And Alice was there, and Alice said, well, okay, I sang over his tracks. He obviously gets the vibe of the music, but I got to see him. I had never met Alice. Yeah. You, don't, you don't meet the artists you end up tracking for a lot of the time. So uh, what they did was they pulled up some YouTube. Tommy Hendrickson pulled up some YouTube of me doing something flashy. And based on that, and Tommy saying, I'm not crazy, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm a good guy. Based on all that, Alice said, yeah, that's the guy, he's in it. And Tommy called me, woke me up in L.A. two hours earlier. Him with his New York accent, yo, man, so I'm here with Mr. Cooper, and uh, we're looking at your videos, and you want to <laughs> you wanna do this tour? I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. He went, all right, you're in, click. You don't go click with a cell phone, but basically that's what it was. And I met Alice on the first day of rehearsal. Wow. Yeah. Where did you guys rehearse at? In, in at, Nashville. Oh, and that's where you at Blackbird? No, we rehearsed at Bandit Lights, the lighting company, because it's a big enough room to run the production with all the props. Oh, and gotcha. then we moved rehearsal over to a casino venue. That's how we rehearsed the show a lot, because it's all the props and everything. that You can't fit it into a normal rehearsal space. And we just stay at the casino and go downstairs every day and run the set and then do our first warm-up show there. Where'd you do the re-records at? What studio? That was in Nashville, and I'm sorry, I can't remember, but it wasn't Blackbird. There's so many studios oh, there. Oh, gosh, yeah. We just did the new Alice record there, and I already forgot what studio that was, but that was a blast. It wasn't Quad, which is now Round Hill Music. Which no, not that. I should know Marty this. Fredrickson. Now, we know Marty for sure. He's joined us on some events playing with us, not yeah. his studio. Muscle of Love was tracked here. Yeah. Cool story. Uh, Alice Cooper, what year is that, 72? Came out in 74. 74. I know that. It's probably done. I mean, back then, bands were putting out one record a year. Nobody record does that tour, anymore. Record tour, record tour, record tour. My owner, Paul Camerata, who owns the studio, you know, this place is a father-son operation, but he was here working then, and he told me that all of a sudden the band was here. That's great. They're fine. But this big, you know, U-Haul kind of truck shows up, and there's literally like 75 boxes in there. And all these guys start loading the boxes into studio lounge where you can hang out. Every room has a, you know, an ISO booth, a live room, a control room. But there's a lounge with a TV, refrigerator where you hang out in between takes. Well, they didn't use their lounge. They filled it up with all these 45 boxes and it was all alcohol. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> it was complete, just boxes things of liquor. Things were pretty nuts by then. That was the last record of the original Alice Cooper lineup. I think Jack Douglas was the producer on that. I can't remember. I think, but I mean, look, we play Muscle of Love live. There is some really great stuff on that record. But Big after time. that- Do you play Muscle of the title track live? Yeah, we have. Not the last tour leg, but we did within the last couple of years. 
the album cover is right across the street here on Sunset at Crossroads of the World. They redesigned everything. Oh, you know, there. I didn't even know that. Yeah, so they must have been in here like, we need to do an album cover. Let's go across the street. <laughs> <laughs> and they were in those little sailor outfits and everything. That is too cool. Such an exciting show with Alice as a, you know, as a viewer and as a, an attendee because it's such a big production. You know, he spends the money on doing cool shit. Yeah, it's basically, I say it's like a Broadway show with blood, with <laughs> fake blood. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts, literally. Oh, I mean, when like Feed My Frankenstein comes out, I mean, that's just got to, the people go nuts. Yeah, that's a highlight of the show. Do you guys close with that a lot? or No, we've been opening with that, actually. Yeah. Uh, that always makes me think of too. What's the uh, Mike Myers movie? Oh, it's uh, Wayne's World. Wayne's World. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think. I, I mean, you'd think that Penel Penelope Spheris, the director, would want Alice to play one of his classics, but they got away with doing a new song. Oh, wow. Yeah. Think about that, and that actually really helped propel that record. I mean, just doing that movie. The way they talk about it, there's there's all these stories. No one thought that that movie was going to be that big of a thing. It's like, oh, that's cute. They're taking a Saturday Night Live skit and turning it into a movie, like the Coneheads, you know. But this became this big cultural moment, Wayne's World. And his scene, too, talking about Milwaukee and... Yeah, you know. Milwaukee. People <laughs> come up to him and do that, and we're not worthy. He gets that all the time. Well, they thought they were going to go back there and party with Alice Cooper, and he's this total intellectual. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, he's he's a great actor, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and Mike Myers has has been a, a fan and friend of Alice and his manager Shep Gordon for years to the point where he did a documentary on Shep called Supermensch. He's joined us at this one charity event singing one of his Austin Powers tunes. Shep still manages them? Yeah, Shep has managed Alice over 50 years. Holy cow. How he, many managers can say that? He lives in Hawaii, correct? In Maui, yeah. yeah. So every year for New Year's, except for the last New Year's for obvious reasons, but we do Shep's charity event, and, and some of us do it in the band. So a couple of the guys live in Europe. They don't always make it, but uh, we play as the house band, and we back up some pretty incredible guests. How, how amazing are his stories just when you guys have downtime and he's just you start vibing with well, him about it. Yeah, I mean, you've been with him 11 years. Stories, it's not like yeah. Between Alice and Shep and Bob Ezrin, there's just stories for days. Did he ever tell you, um, you know, there was a show that did one season on HBO. I absolutely loved it, Vinyl. I thought that was a great fucking show. It was. And Alice yeah. Cooper, there's a whole episode dedicated yep. to him. There's and a he, guy playing Alice. Yeah, and it almost looks You want to know similar. if that's real, right? Well, let if me give you the premise, the setup, the tee-up. He torments an A&R guy for a whole 30 hours of drinking and partying, and this guy's trying to sign him to uh, you know, his record label. And they go play golf, and then they fool him by acting like they're going to chop his head off with a guillotine. Yeah. Did he ever mention that story? Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. Um, I believe they borrowed one of the guillotines from Alice Storage because that's part of our show. So it was uh -huh. either the one they use in the show or another one that they had. And one of the old props guys had to coordinate with them. That didn't happen, according to Alice. But there's a big but here. There's another episode of Vinyl where there's somebody who plays Elvis. Yeah. Right. So that episode, watching that, I'm watching going, I know what's going to happen here. This was the famous party trick that Elvis would do. He'd say, here, you take my gun, and I'm going to disarm you. Watch. You know, I'm trained. 
And Alice said that happened to him when he went up to visit Elvis in, in his Vegas. penthouse in Vegas. And he says they search you for weapons before you go up there. And then he's going to show you his gun collection. <laughs> yeah, he's got a whole story about that. But watching vinyl, I'm like, I, I see where this is going. He's going to do the trick. Richie who's the president of the label played by Bobby Cannavale. He's great in that. Yeah, incredible. Everything about that thing, the writing, the acting, the people that are in it. I mean, they should have greenlit that. I think it we... mixes a bit of real history with fiction and sort of like Forrest Gump almost. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. I wonder what label that was on, though. It's got to be influenced by something. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, things in that show, if they're not real, they're based on something that happened. Free Sunset Sound hoodie, if you can name the actual record label that vinyl's uh, remember, yeah. based on. You know, I know you've told the story again, but you were the fill-in for Motley Crue and the amazing Tommy Lee because you guys were out, in, out on the road. And what happened with Tommy that you had to fill in? Yeah, that was that was pretty crazy. It was 2015. Alice Cooper was the special guest, which is uh, it's a cut above being just the support act. We had full production and did just about an hour long set. We were the special guest on Motley Crue's farewell tour. They called it the farewell tour. All right. Don't blame me. They came back five years later to announce we're back. But <laughs> but we had been out on tour with them on and off for a while. And we were in Buffalo, New York, and I got a call from the production manager for Motley Crue, Robert Long. And I had met him years earlier when he was a guitar tech with Marilyn Manson. I met him when I was with Beautiful Creatures. And he tells me, he asked me, can you fill in for Tommy Lee tonight? He's got a problem with his wrist. And I, I was like, all right, who's fucking with me? I thought it was a joke. And no, it was real. And so I said, have... Somebody pick me up, a runner van, get me to the venue. I need Adam. To, Adam was their sound guy. I said, tell Adam to make me a board mix of the show, put it on a thumb drive. I have to sit in a production office and make charts, cheat sheets. You know, people might say, yeah, it's Motley Crue. No, the, some of their songs oh can God. be pretty involved. I mean, I, I think of a song like Wild Side. The guitar riff is 14 beats long, and it's it changes. It's different every time with the chorus. you got to know it. I mean... There's an arena of 15,000 people. There's bombs going off literally next to the drums, you know, and CO2 cannons and flamethrowers. Nikki Six has the flamethrower bass on Shout at the Devil <laughs> on his bass. It looks so illegal, but the fire inspector in each city would come out and sign off on that every day. Wow. And so there's distractions is what I'm saying. Yeah. And so I made the cheat sheets. You know, Vince doesn't sing a lot of the time. He holds the mic out to the audience. You sing, you know, just you got to be ready for any of that. All their songs, there's a click track there because the it's all synced up with the lights. If Tommy goes, the lights go, the lights do it in unison yeah, yeah. with the drums. It, it's all programmed in. And there's a guy there, Viggy, who developed the system and he's there to run it. So you've got to know what you're doing. You can't phone it in. Fortunately, I read music. I'm used to making these cheat sheets. I had filled in on a very big Italian gig, actually, that Kenny has also done. Uh, Vasco Rossi. Oh, he's the biggest rock star in Italy. Yeah. He's the biggest guy, the biggest rock star in Italy, hands down. It's all stadiums and arenas. That's a gig I did last minute. I got called in 2010. I got a call three days later. I was on a flight to Sardinia to rehearse. The drummer had an injury. So the fact that I had done that and I did five weeks, the fact that I had done that when the Motley Crue thing came up, it was like, okay, I've done this before. 
I got, I've got this. There's always that party that's like, oh my God, what I get myself into. But you have to trust that you can do things. Sure. And the fact that there's a, a metronome, a click track on every song, that's a, that's a big help. Big time. It takes out the, the need to guess the exact right tempo. And it came off great. I did a week of shows of both sets. Had a deep tissue masseuse so like, come down. You and, have four hours of drumming every night. Yeah, well, let's see. Probably about three, three hours and 45 minutes. Oh. Yeah. But the trick was not to cool down between the two sets. 100%, the first yeah. night I made the mistake of cooling down. You got to treat like one long show. What did you do in between the sets? I just, I changed out of the, the soaking wet shirt, put on a new one, and I keep moving around and I had a heating pad, put it on my neck and shoulders and you figure it out. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> Take ibuprofen if you need, that brings down inflammation, all that. You know, it's funny you say that because that's also like Van Halen, they played amazing music live. Their live shows, everyone just said, were simply fascinating and explosive, but literally explosive because they had bombs going off yeah. on stage. And Pyro is a whole other thing. Yeah. It's got to be so just insanely distractive when all of a sudden you're trying not, to think of something. Not oh, when you yeah. know where it is. I mean, like, okay, with the Motley Crue thing, just being there on tour, we'd be backstage, you'd hear this big boom through the wall. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that part of Primal Scream in the last chorus where they add an extra bar of rest before the final chorus. So when you know it's coming, it's not so bad. It still shocked the hell out of me. Yeah, especially and, and when you're are, halfway drunk, probably, and no, what else? Yeah, whatever they're, else they're called <laughs> concussion bombs. And yeah, if you don't have earplugs on and you're near it, you could get some hearing damage. I bet. What was the funnest song to play on the Molly Crew Tour? Uh, you know, I, I, I like the, the Groovers. Like I mentioned, Primal Scream, that was always one of my favorites. That's just such a grooving, heavy, funky tune. Tommy Lee's drum part on that is just perfect yeah. you know he's another guy he doesn't get enough recognition he does on one hand but on the other hand he doesn't he's an important part of the sound of that band so i figured it's up to me to do my best tommy lee impression on the drums nobody's going to sound exactly alike but you know he's got that swagger and funkiness it's like the classic rock influence from bonham that he's taken and doing his own thing with it primal scream is great wild side is killer um, Dr. Feelgood it's so syncopated it's, it's got weird hits where if you're not right in the pocket it's going to sound awkward um, did you play with Marilyn Manson? Uh, not on his gig but I, I've played with them at different events yeah. like at NAMM and stuff like that and we did a month of tour with him Alice and Manson in 2013 we have a mutual friend that had spent some years with them and was he awkward or a genius? Manson? yeah Oh, man, it probably depends what day it is. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're going to get a different guy depending on the day. Alice is consistent. He is who he is. But I, I guess if Manson wasn't getting enough sleep, people would say, oh, no, he's on the rampage today. You know, watch out. But I, the longer we were on tour with him in that one month, the more he kind of started to hang and was, was in our dressing room. I mean, definitely a weird guy, but playing that up yeah, for sure. Who got him really started? Trent Reznor? I'm not so. sure the exact history there. He had the same manager for a long time. Because they did, they recorded a bunch of stuff for Interscope, but they went into the house um, that Sharon Tate was murdered in when all the Manson family killed. That's where they recorded a lot of their records. Of course, right? <laughs> for a creepy vibe. Trent Reznor tells a great story about that. How they Similar production sounds or an overlapping <laughs> sounds and vibe with 
nails, Nine Inch Nails and Manson. I could see that. Yeah, I think he kind of discovered him. Um, what was he nominated for a Grammy for this year? I, I just saw I don't remember. the outrage, Tell me. but Manson? I didn't know what he was nominated for. Uh, I'm actually not sure. You're talking about the current Grammys? Yeah, just yesterday. I don't know. I got to keep or up two with days this. Ago. All right. He's had his share of controversy, obviously, lately, so it just could have had anything to do with that. Yeah, I can't even watch any of this stuff. You don't know what's real, what's not. Um, mm-hmm. Back to you, though. You have another incredibly cool band you play with, which a lot of people don't know the term or what it means, but the Hollywood Vampires. <laughs> And, I mean, what's the current lineup of the Hollywood Vampires? Well, the three principal guys, it's Johnny Depp on guitar, it's Joe Perry on guitar, and it's Alice singing. And then the band's rounded out. I'm on drums. There's Chris Wise on bass, who played in the Colt for a long time, did an Aussie record or two. He's done a lot of gigs. We've got Buck Johnson on backup vocals, keys. He's Aerosmith's guy a long time, amazing musician. And we got Tommy Hendrickson on guitar he's kind of the musical director of the whole thing yeah and And he got you into that too basically yeah Yeah. i mean or alice obviously as well Well, yeah tommy alice both of them absolutely that's that's been crazy we tell tell me sorry to cut you off how did you get the gig for this i need every detail yeah well (laughs) the association with johnny depp and alice cooper started in 2011 we were in london and we had a week off which is rare you wouldn't have a week off anywhere but we did because Alice was filming his whole sequence in the movie Dark Shadows with Tim Burton, who directed it, and Johnny stars in the movie. And there's this whole thing where Alice and the what looks like the original Alice Cooper band, they use the digital tricks to de-age Alice. They're performing the ballad of Dwight Fry. It's this huge, pivotal scene later in the movie. So there was a week off. But then during that week, towards the end of it, there was this last-minute little club gig booked at the 100 Club in London. It's kind of like the Viper Room of London. It's that small. Uh So we got word that day, Johnny Depp's going to play a couple with us tonight. And he's coming to Soundcheck to rehearse. And he did I'm 18 and School's Out. And it got into like People Magazine. It was this big thing all over. Biggest actor in the world. Yeah, and the association started there. And from there, the next one of the next major things we did was play the premiere party of Dark Shadows in Hollywood, where it was a big surprise. Johnny's here, and hey, Joe Perry's here too. And oh my God, Steven Tyler. They just kept adding the special guests. We rehearsed at Johnny's house the night before. And then at a NAM show, the, the big music industry trade show, we did this one nighttime party where it was called the Johnny Depp Band. And our special surprise guests were Marilyn Manson and Alice and Steven Tyler. And I think as Alice's manager, Shep, was watching us rehearse, he's thinking this, this, this could be something more than just these random special events. I think that's, that's how it really started. And there was the first record, Hollywood Vampires. What year? We, uh, came out 2015. It's covers mostly. You recorded that at Johnny's house? No, that one we did at a different studio at the Village. I'm on half of that record. There's some guest drummers like Dave Grohl on it and the original Alice drummer oh, Neil. Yeah, 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 I knew that. Yeah, uh, the second record I'm on the whole thing, and uh, that's mostly originals with two covers. It's the opposite, but the the name comes. Yeah, let's talk um, about that. The yeah. Hollywood Vampires. If you've been to L.A. and went to the Rainbow Room like I did 15 years ago just because I wanted to see the cool stuff, upstairs there's a little bit 
of a music venue. There's a stage. It probably holds, I don't know, 100 people. Well, max. it was a dance floor that became a stage, yeah. weirdly, but it's a stage that you look down at, not up at. It's like you're in an attic. It is yeah. an attic, but there's a plaque up there that says... Yeah, it's the Hollywood Vampire's original plaque. They were a drinking club. Alice was the quote-unquote president, <laughs> and people who passed through this club would be like Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix, Mickey Dolenz from the Monkees, Harry Nilsson, Keith Moon. John Lennon. Yeah, of course, John Lennon. He's listed Lennon. on that plaque too, right? He is, Lennon? yeah, I believe he is. It's still there, and the plaque was put up probably around 72, 73. Oh, shit, it's been I think it's been long? there. That You'd okay. have to ask Amy or Mike Maglieri about that, the, the owners. Wow. But um, that's, that's the original meaning of Hollywood Vampires. But then cut to 2014 or so, it became the name of a band. And so there's an original song on the first record I recorded. It's called My Dead Drunk Friends. And it's kind of about a lot of these guys, but it sounds like a bunch of swashbuckling pirates that are drinking. And, and so that's, that's where that started. That's where the So name there came was from. no, isn't there like a documentary on the Hollywood vampires or something? Not, not on the band, the original group. I don't know if there's anything specifically on that, but it's been mentioned in a lot of other. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a little segment on the vampires, but didn't, did they play music back then, those guys? No, just they were a, just let's hanging get out fucked up crowd. Drink, yeah. Wow. That's it. And with the band, we've done some great tours, Europe and whatever, and we've had a couple of legs of tour blown out within the last year and a half, but so so is everybody else. Was but, Johnny making movies and then going on tour? Yeah, he'd have to find the time and the schedule, just like anybody else would, to do a leg of tour. Yeah. And that just makes it, just it's different i mean his his bodyguards and his assistant you know they're used to being in one place a location they're filming at this is moving on every day and they have to figure out ways to get them out of a building you know we're in warsaw poland and there's like a hundred people out front waiting for him to come out they they found out what hotel he's at somehow wow. they always do and then someone thinks that he's going out the side entrance and there's a stampede of people over to the side and it's that kind of thing. It's fucking Jack Sparrow, bruh. Yeah. I mean, seriously, people freak out. But he that. loves to play music. I don't know what he likes more, acting or playing guitar. Probably music. He didn't even watch the movies he's in. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. Also, he, I just saw, you know, speaking of Jeff Beck, we were listening to the Loud Hailer record. <laughs> uh, him and Jeff Beck just did a song. It's up all over the place. Just them two. Yeah, they be, they're like BFFs now. There was this one dinner one night at Johnny's Place, and Jeff came over, and they kind of hit it off famously. And so Jeff is on a track on the second Vampires record that we did. That's so... That's a guy I never thought I'd play with. It's a bucket list kind of person. I, I didn't track it live with him, but he is one of the, the greatest living players that we have. Well, my girl Carmen from Bones, she just told me last week before she left to year, for Europe, Bones she UK. goes... Yeah, I got dropped, and now Johnny Johnny Depp took my place. But it's okay because he's Johnny Depp. <laughs> oh, from Jeff's circle or lineup yeah. or whatever. She's English. Actually, yeah. she's Italian, but I'm doing Ori's voice. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, she goes, yeah, Johnny Depp took my place, and now he's the BFF. So they were they were out on tour playing tunes. I guess Johnny would get up and do a couple few every night. Wow, crazy. He's a good guitar player. I mean, he's been playing a long time too, right? Johnny? Oh, sure. Yeah, Johnny had a band when he was in Florida. <clears throat> called the kids and they they moved to la <clears throat> around 83 and that's to when, make it as a band but yeah. he got sidetracked by the acting 21 thing. 21st jump street or what is it 21 called? jump street 21 yeah. jump street the tv show he's in nightmare on elm street the first one of those a lot of people probably think 21 jump street is just jonah hill right channing tatum they don't well, know johnny's got a cameo 
Oh the yeah, because he played. Yeah, he wears the, he the makeup shot. and yeah. That shit is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So when you go over to Johnny's house to do a demo, he has a studio there. You never know who's going to be there. You know, one night we go over, David Blaine's hanging out and he's doing card tricks for us. And it's a lot of late nights. But God, we got things done. Cool, man. Yeah. It's, it's this surreal stuff. But yeah, they're literally vampires. I'm talking about Johnny and Joe Perry. Well, tell me that story also because we, you know, we made a record here. So we talked about a lot of shit. But. On your audition for the vampires. Well, uh, again, I, I wouldn't call it an audition. I, I had, Your first hangout. I had played on the first record, obviously, but they were figuring out what are we doing for the next record and the next tour? What are we doing for the ultimate lineup? You know, the there's the principals, the three guys, and then there's everybody else backing them up. And they had this idea for original songs. This time it was original. And they had this whole thing. It was like a mix of stoner rock and gypsy rock, you know. Uh, what are we going to do? And so they knew me, obviously, from playing the Alice show, which is the same thing. It's this, it's this, it's like a machine. It's the same thing every night, but it's a whole other thing to do their brand of rock and roll. So yeah. Tommy said, all right, I'm going to make sure that you are locked in for this. Tommy Hendrickson, he's the musical director, producer of the second record. He said, Wednesday night, you're going to come over to Johnny's. We're going to do this demo session. And I, I, this was back in, uh, this was January of 20. 18 i said i can't I, I got a gig it was nam week the week of the nam show i i have a gig he said it doesn't matter come after the gig i said the gig is in anaheim you know you're in hollywood he said it doesn't matter come after i said if i come after the gig i won't get there till 1 30 in the morning tommy said perfect they're just getting going at that time <laughs> you gotta be okay all the right vampires. i'm not gonna complain i'm just gonna do it because i'll be amped up from the gig hopefully not burn out it was a long gig i was playing with ori and richie that night among oh, wow. other people it was one of those gigs where i was in the house band backing up several artists fun but a long night so i took off and i got there like 115 130 and they had this one demo song it, it turned out to be the song on the record called get from round and it is a strange song with strange Joe Perry cool riffs. And they kind of had a skeleton in the song. And Johnny said, brother, play something impossible. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it's a director directing me. So I'm like, yes. I'm just going to go in and play. I mean, the fact that I was burnt out probably helped because when you're tired, you just don't give a shit. Yeah. And you sometimes play your best stuff because you're not trying anything too hard. You just do it. And I did it. And they loved it. And this is this is what we're looking for. This kind of vibe. It was like that song particularly needed a little bit of almost drunken drums, like very imperfect, but with a click track. So, yeah, that's how that started. There was nights that went late that were demo sessions. Yeah, right. Like four in the morning, I'm like starting to put my jacket on. And Joe's like, Joe Perry, wait, you're not leaving yet, are you? I'm take my jacket off. No, I guess not. I'm just like dead tired, but... We did some cool demos that turned into cool songs. Joe and Johnny, they, they like yeah. rage it up. Do something impossible. <laughs> yeah, play something impossible. <laughs> play something impossible. It's a yeah. t-shirt. Uh, they got good taste. I got to say, they got good taste in riffs and tones, and it was fun. What's uh, Johnny Depp plays a guitar? Gibson? Oh, man. Well, he doesn't really have an endorsement. I'm sure no, he but like, owns. His house is loaded with like hundreds of guitar or it seems like that he just has a lot of cool guitars okay vintage stuff i thought he played like a gold top or something 
Um, Orianthi, we made the record. We dropped her name a few times, but you know her because she was in the Alice Cooper band, which a lot of people don't know. And she joined that group in 2011, right? Yep. Um, had, how long had you been in the group then? I had only been in a year? for a few months. Oh, wow. Yeah, she came in September of 2011. I have that kind of weird memory. I came in, I started officially April of 2011. That's such a weird dynamic for that group, though. Why was, how did she get involved, you know? You know, it, it worked. And how it originally started, I'm... Now that you ask that, it might have started when Alice Cooper was a special guest on American Idol, and she was there, too, playing with somebody. Don't mm. quote me on that, but I, I think that's how that started. Yeah. That's wild. And somebody made a call, and then someone else made a call, and before we knew it, you know, Damon Johnson was leaving the band. to He was leaving the Alice Cooper band to join Thin Lizzy, his favorite band of all time. So this opening was there, and all of a sudden, Orianti is the new guitar player, and she came and rehearsed with us. I met her that day, and the next day we were on Jay Leno to play the new Alice single. Cool. Yeah. She did two years with you guys, right? Yeah, two, two and a half years. Did she just get fed up kind of, or I'll have to ask No, her. no, she she uh, she started playing and hanging with Richie. Yeah. Oh, and then they did those three records over five years or something. Yeah, I, I played it. a little with them in Brazil and in the States, some various things, NAMM show. And Carrie Underwood she started playing guitar with, or was that just one-off? Kind she, of? well, one thing she did do with Carrie Underwood that was major was playing on the Grammys. Yeah, yeah. She was heavily featured. She did this ripping guitar solo on a Carrie Underwood song. A lot of country and pop artists, they want these shredding guitar players. It's pretty amazing, actually, because the records don't have that. But live, all of a sudden, there's a shredder. And so Ori got all kinds of great camera time. And, of course, the next day, people were saying, who is that girl on guitar? So that pushed her out there a lot. She's... Everybody knows her because she's very famous as a guitar player, but she is fucking phenomenal as a guitarist. She is and so singer. good. And, and, and singer, too. Yeah. Let's talk about the production of the album we just did a little bit. You could call in, in here. Room. In this room. Your drum set's right where I'm sitting. Um, you know, I called you in the middle of the night, said, Ori wants you on this record. It wasn't a rock record. She's done rock albums, pop rock, shredder rock, but this is... You know, I always compare it to Gary Clark Jr.'s This Land because there's a funk song, there's a rock song, there's a blues song, there's a ballad. There's it a touches on a lot. Yeah, there's even kind of a grungy song, yeah. I consider it. In My Head, which is featuring Carmen from Bones, who I adore. Were you surprised to hear the sounds that we did on that? Not really. Intimidated at all? Like, oh, no, shit, I, this isn't rock. This is kind no, of... Because having played with her and doing some of her solo tour stuff and gigs i know that she loves the blues she loves rock she loves the bluegrass thing and she's had all the influences everything from carlos santana to eric clapton to steve Vai to stevie ray it wasn't that surprising she is not a one-trick pony no. by any stretch and so you needed some players in that would be able to cover that ground and it was it was like refreshing it's like oh we're gonna do this and now this yeah. this heavy shuffle with the floor tom and now there's this cool heavy ballad you know, I, I thought, great. It was so fun. And it I wasn't could tell you were having fun, too. You're like, these are great. You were having a good, a good time in there. Yeah. And we were recording live in the room. Yeah. Which, again, it just doesn't happen enough these days. Orianthi right there. Justin on bass right there. Glenn behind me. Three-piece. Yep. Ori's putting a scratch vocal. We do overdubs later. Her vo voice is so good. I mean, I didn't realize. Yeah, there's I a piano ballad on the record, right? Michael. 
Let's name drop here. Mike Glenn on drums, Justin on bass, but Michael Bearden plays keys on every record, who's Lady Gaga's musical director. Then we have guest spots from Joe Bonamassa, Robert Randolph, Gary Clark Jr. I mean, we're in the studio, Santana calls us, and it's like, hey, I need to check on my little girl. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the uh, amount of artists that came together, Robbie Krieger, Robert Randolph flew in, um, Steve Vai's playing on a track now. They really wanted to support nice. her for this record, and it was kind of a, a really cool thing that I'm just honored to be a producer on because, you know, they love the sound one, but they really want to help her out and kind of just. And who doesn't love coming down to Sunset Sound and yeah. laying down some tracks and hanging with friends? I mean, yeah. it's that casual in some ways, but that turns into great guests and great songs and playing. Yep. That record's going to come out next year. Um we actually have one of the greatest mixing engineers ever, too, that I just got on board who's here at Sunset Sound, has his his room here. So it just, you know, it was meant to be, and it's going to be great. Uh, it was very fun, though. I had a, that's one of the great, greatest sessions I've ever been on, and we had a uh, great lunch every day, too. Yeah, <laughs> the food. It's all about the food and the basketball. Thank you, Renee. The basketball. We, giving us, Renee's uh, Ori's manager, but he gave us a great food budget. <laughs> um, so what do you think about... Music in 2021, not just music, but the industry and also kind of being a drummer, you know, for those kids that are coming up or even the guy that's 40. What's what's it mean to be a drummer coming out now? It's a completely different thing. A uh, little older than 40, but uh, not you, but I'm oh, saying a guy even a 40. guy that is right. 40 that might be starting off for the drums, but it's killer. Not just young. I mean, people. music. And, God, it's anybody's guess. There's so many different streets you could go down when it comes to the music business. There's people that are making their living being like these online personalities yeah. through music and then milking that in different ways. I'm coming from the, the hired gun thing. I'm doing the, the rock and things that stray from rock, you know, pop and blues and fusion. But it's always different circles of people that you have to be sort of in with and seen as reliable. I, I'm coming from that perspective, a hired gun. You know, not a member of a band where you're a partner in a business. That's different. A hired gun has to be able to navigate a lot of personalities and situations, yes. musically and otherwise. And there's always some layer of politics that you have to kind of learn about quickly or keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Keep the ego in check. No matter of what course. You think yeah. I mean, I've known some great players where their ego has been their biggest downfall. They're in their own way. You know, I mean, a producer tells you to try something different. Don't argue, man. Just try something different. They might be right. But the sad thing is, too, because you're so easily replaceable. Yeah, it's <laughs> L.A. Like, there are hundreds of people waiting crazy. to be called for that session. People wonder about the status or the future of rock. I mean, there are new rock acts that are out there that are doing well. Name well, one. Well, like Greta Van Fleet. and See, that's what everybody names. Greta Van Fleet. Royal Blood. And Royal Blood's cool. Sure, but they're they're bringing in people to good-sized venues. Yeah, big time. I mean, you're right. There are. I, I think rock and roll is coming back. I think things there's come in artist, cycles. I, I can't say anything about it yet because there's no release date. There's no announcement. There's a cool artist that I just I did a record for. It's in the can. It's done. It's a major legendary producer involved, not Bob Ezrin. Ted Templeman? But, uh, no, I wish, right? But, uh, no, Bob did the latest Alice record. He's a legend in his own right. But this Great is a whole different producer. It's a full-on rock thing. I wish I could talk about it, but it's it's coming next year. And it was a blast to do. And all you could do is, is see how things go. But kids, there are there is a definite uh, section of kids that are into rock. I look at School of Rock, 
which is this nationwide, worldwide thing. Sure. I've done things with them. I, I did I was I did this artist mentor program they did one year in 2017 where uh, I'm friends with one of the main administrators and she flew me and some other people to Milwaukee where they have the Summerfest. It's a multi-stage festival and Over all the kids, yeah, it's a long thing. We've played it with Alice. It, it, it's all the kids from different school of rocks around the country. They fly them to Milwaukee. They perform on these big stages and they're all between the ages of like 10 and 17. I, I couldn't imagine getting this opportunity when I was that age. I would have been scared to death. But these kids, they rehearse. The special advanced ones, they get flown out. And as an artist mentor, I give them the constructive criticism. I get up and I play with them. They mix all the kids together from different cities. And they have them get up to play. A, a, it's like a mixed bag. And the song that got chosen was uh, Breaking the Law by Judas Priest. And this little girl sang it. And I played drums. <laughs> and awesome. Phil X was there, Bon Jovi's guitar player. And I've done a lot with him. And and a lot of other L.A. guys uh, were flowing there. And we hung with these kids. And they're all playing like some of them were playing Rush or Dream Theater. One group played Life is a Highway, Tom Cochran. And, wow. Uh, Emerald by Thin Lizzy, that's which cool. I love Thin Lizzy, but that's a deep cut that's badass. I'm like, these kids are 16 and they love this. And there's a cutoff at 18 where you can't be in that school anymore. And really? they're bummed when that. they age out of it. Yeah. But then some of them go on to form their own bands. It showed me that rock is still enjoyed very much by kids. And we may not be that in trouble as far as the audience for it. And I think you're exactly right. The audience loves rock, but it's like the stuff that even the media talks about. This doesn't even apply in music. It's like we're not into that shit, and there's the majority almost isn't into that shit. So I don't know why we're spoon-fed all this stuff, even about politics. It's just so weird. The media and music. It's like that's not what people want. Well, but in they a act way, like that's the the majority. It's kind it's of really always not. it's kind of always been like that in a way. If you think about MTV and mainstream rock and pop radio, I talked about when grunge started kicking in in the early '90s. Suddenly, MTV started playing Nirvana. Smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah. Well, what came first here? Is this them telling you this is the new thing now? We're not going to play this anymore. You know, we got the cartoon Beavis and Butthead making fun of hair bands. MTV was an dictating yeah. the direction. They were an effective filter about uh, in what a way, was cool. Yeah. Suddenly, the, the VMAs, the Video Music Awards, it was Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, and... Uh, like I said, it was it was depressing to us at the end of an era, but it, it kind of must have been similar to when disco was dying, and yeah, and there's always eras. But into the late '90s, I mean, I remember in high school, like music videos were cool as shit, and I was just talking about with Kenny because Bullet with Butterfly Wings and Tonight Tonight, those music videos were fucking yeah, awesome. They had budgets, movie directors were doing videos. Yeah, gigantic. Or yeah. getting their start in music videos and taking off to... Danny Boyle or even like in the hip-hop side, Hype Williams, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did all those gigantic uh, California Love videos, Tupac, but... Now you film a video with this. Yeah, I mean, there's a 4K video it. camera. And they don't give you... They give you 5,000 bucks. You know, Warner Brothers will give you five grand to do a music video. What? And pay for the gaffer. <laughs> and I think that was such a great way to get your music out to people. Yeah, well, now everybody can get their music out to people, and that's great, and it's also part of the problem because there's no, there's no barrier of entry 
into this thing called the music business. Anybody can upload their songs to Spotify and be right alongside the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Who and Van Halen. Yeah. And I heard there a statistic, maybe something like 60,000 tracks a day yeah, are yeah, uploaded. Yeah. Did That's Joe Rogan blog. say that? I think I heard, I think I heard it from Bob Lefsetz. Oh, okay. I read his blog all the time. That's But a, yeah, it's a known statistic. That's mind-blowing right there. Yeah, and if you get a million streams, you might get four bucks. <laughs> yeah, a million is not that much in the big picture. No. It really isn't. Well, now they're corrupting it also where you can buy your streams and have all these kind of bots yeah. go do things. And even on YouTube videos. The numbers aren't trustworthy, yeah. And that's also with the record labels. They want you to have... 500 million followers and a 2,000 billion uh, yeah. streams, and then they'll and people start ask, well, why do I need a label if I yeah, got that exactly. big following? Yeah, A and R, where they would build you and then press the go button, you know, is a thing. Yeah, far, beautiful far creatures. Past. When we were on Warner Brothers, that was one of those last kind of deals, the old school type of deal, where yeah, the label was behind us big time. But you know, we learned a lot about what not to do. All this money got wasted which was the name of our first single, Wasted. It wasn't about wasting money, but should have been. But, man, we saw some terrible, wasteful spending. And we were on OzFest that year, you know, but it was right before our record came out. So we were into all this money owed to the label before the record was even out. Wow. You know, the tour bus and the video that we did make and, yeah, you know, getting a, a big-time mixer to mix a song and we didn't even use it because it wasn't the right mixer. <laughs> Things like that. It's like, ah, oh, just chalk that up to, you know, a photo shoot in Times Square. Oh, it's like 30 grand. It's all recoupable. And yeah, Ugh. it adds up quick. Yeah. that's. Uh, I mean, you hear that story so many times. We sold 5 million records, but we still owe the record label 400 grand. Yeah. What? So what would you tell in, you know, a brief one or two sentences for the band or the rockers or the drummer that's starting up and they think they have a hit song? What would be your advice to kind of get that notice. Do a really killer video, put some money together in. Keep writing. Yeah. Write a lot. You're going to think you have your best song, but if you keep writing, then 10 songs down the road, that the song you thought was it, the closer, it might not be that great. You got to keep doing this. The best songwriters, they have a high turnout of songs, and then the gems kind of reveal themselves over time. Yeah, and it really goes back to hard work, one, but two, also... It, is the music you know if it's I'm a saying, hit song yeah. it's going to be heard and people are going to share it. you got to close people quick these days because they'll watch you on tiktok and give you 10 seconds of a chance i mean you have to draw people in on one listen and you know there's a lot of producers and writers that did this back to the 60s that isn't such a new thing a lot of the motown writers they would put a song in front of like a committee of just normal non-musician people and they would ask them what do you think do you like this song big time yeah 100 yeah. percent. and yeah. also you know i think a killer video all i do is watch youtube i don't watch the news it's the most depressing thing ever the media lies to you everything's corrupt i watch youtube because there's a video or a podcast or some kind of show or content on anything that you're interested in and i look at music videos all the time on there and it doesn't have to be some you know crazy $2 million budget, but you can do no. some cool shit that's catchy and it's a platform viral. to get the music out. The video is important. Yeah. And it can be done very cheap and people can get pretty creative with how they do it. They have. And have a brand, you know, stand for something. Uh, you know, the music is the entry point. I love artists that have mystery and kind of, you know. Hard to have mystery these days, but yeah, yeah it can be done. <laughs> keep them wanting you, you more. You got to keep 
Yeah, you keep them wanting more. You got to have a good output. You can't expect this one record you make to be the thing, and then you don't make another record for two or three years. There has to be some kind of output, not necessarily new songs, but something that yeah. keeps people engaged and interested. There's a lot of people that are doing this, and they feel like it's their birthright to make money and get famous in the music business, but it's always been hard. They they think, oh, if it was only 20, 25 years ago, I'd be huh. rich and famous. It's never been easy. No. <laughs> never no not at all oh man that's it's just so insane the the day and age we live in um you have socials like everyone else uh at glenn sobel yeah or glenn underscore sobel i think if you type my name in because you I'm do findable. consulting and lessons you still sure. do drum lessons so yep, here and there if you're a drummer in you know tampa florida you can get a hold of glenn and uh, Kenny does lessons still. He was telling me that just a little bit ago. You know, it, it is a great thing to do because just being a teacher, sometimes you get turned on to certain things by younger students just out of high school. I taught at Musicians Institute for 20 years on and off oh, in, yeah. in Hollywood here. And I, I would learn things from students about certain artists or, or certain drummers that they're listening to. It's it's a two-way street sometimes. So, you know, I enjoy I was doing with it. Diane Warren the other day, but I met her and she, her and this other gentleman I'm about to name who worked at MI and was a legend in AR, Don Grierson. Do you remember him? Sounds familiar. Music business. He was head of AR at Capitol, Sony, uh, even at Abbey Road. You don't remember him? He died like three years ago. Oh, man. But he was old and he worked at, did the music business program at MI for a long time. I thought you would have known his name. Well, he could have been some kind of guest visiting faculty that would... No, he was there. Did he have a class there? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, Boy, I would have liked to have They were in a different building, too, though. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, I thought you might have known him. But he was so instrumental in helping me, you know, 15 years ago. I did one course there as a UCLA extension, and he was just a great person. And then Diane Warren had the memorial for him when uh, he had passed, and she's obviously one of the biggest songwriters yeah. ever. But, um, yeah, I mean, also networking, you know, do the networking. The more people you know, it's just a lot of people come in here at sunset and they'll save up the money to do a day and, okay, we got it. Now what do we do with it? And it's like, <laughs> you know, have that game plan before you record it almost. Yeah, and, and when it comes to the business and working musicians, yeah, people like to work with their friends. When you say networking, you know, that's, that's an overused word, but it's true. you got to be friends with somebody i mean when it comes to a tour think about it it's kind of weird for someone to hire a random musician that no one in the band knows then you're in a van or a bus together and people like familiarity yeah be nice to everyone it's uh if you don't you know problems everywhere you go and you're not going to enjoy this life you can see glenn on uh, the next alice cooper tour but also the monsters of rock cruise yeah, yeah alice is the headliner on that and, did he come uh, up with the whole thing it's his idea kind no, of. no no that's a guy larry moran he's had that for a long oh, time the monsters right. of rock yeah, cruise yeah, yeah. Cool. everybody knows everybody and it should be fun uh, hopefully people won't party too hard <laughs> and fall overboard yeah, right. but Real quick, I'm just saying, I've never been on like a music cruise. So you guys obviously all get like a floor rooms for the artists and then you play like next to the pool or something. Yeah. Um, or is there a theater? Yeah, everybody gets their room, uh, room or suite or whatever. And usually I think every artist does two shows, one in an indoor theater and then one up on the deck. Okay. If, that's how we did the one other cruise we've done. And I think it's the same thing this time. Is it kind of like a festival on a cruise where someone yeah. plays at one, then you play at three, then Basically, five? Basically, it's that. It's Music a festival all time. on a boat. 
and you have the little booklet of who's playing when. It's like, oh, I got to go. So-and-so's playing in that theater at 2 o'clock. I got to go. And That's cool. you just sample everybody. And yeah. Yeah, Carmen said she's doing one, too. I forget what. Just watch uh, the buffet. Um. All right. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, I think we covered a lot of yeah. This good is stuff. fun, man. You're such a cool guy, and that's another thing. It's like I talked about Glenn about another record I'm doing, and I want him to play drums on it. And it's like just because we get along, and you're a nice guy, and it's fun to hang. be around. Yeah, it's a hang. It's Not this. Work. You're looking at what we do. People get paid to do this, and then happen to play some music <laughs> while we're not talking. All right, buddy. Well, that's amazing, and I appreciate everything. So let's Likewise. wrap up on this. That's a roundtable. Thank you very much.